0: Today we continue our series in Ezekiel, which we're calling Strangest Things. And Ezekiel continues to have experiences that are out of the ordinary. And today in chapter 6, we see Ezekiel being commanded by God to preach to the mountains. Now this is very interesting we normally expect a preacher to preach behind a pulpit to a congregation. We think it's out of the ordinary when someone is standing on the roadside at a, a traffic stop as they're preaching to cars going by. We say, well, they're, they're a little different. They're a little out there. But imagine that you found a preacher out in the middle of nowhere with no one around, and there he was going at it, preaching at the mountains. What would you think about that? What would that be about? That's what we're going to discover this morning. I want to invite you to uh, stand with me in honor and reverence for the reading of God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 6, and we will read verses 1 through 10. Again, a message came to me from the Lord, son of man, turn and face the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. Proclaim this message from the Sovereign Lord against the mountains of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to the mountains and to the hills and to the ravines and to the valleys. I am about to bring war upon you. And I will smash your pagan shrines. All your altars will be demolished and your places of worship will be destroyed. I will kill your people in front of your idols. I will lay your corpses in front of the idols, and scatter your bones around the altars. Wherever you live, there will be desolation. I will destroy the pagan shrines. Your altars will be demolished, your idols will be smashed, and your places of worship will be torn down, and all the religious objects you have made will be destroyed. The place will be littered with corpses, and you will know that I alone am the Lord. But I will let a few of my people escape destruction, And they'll be scattered among the nations of the world. And then when they are exiled among the nations, they will remember me. They will recognize how hurt I am by their unfaithful hearts and their lustful eyes that long for idols. Then at last they will hate themselves for all of their detestable sins. They will know that I alone am the Lord and that I was serious when I said I would bring this calamity On them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we come to you in this passage, Lord, I pray that we would understand, God, the importance of the covenant that we have with you. Lord, God, that you love us completely and you desire us to be completely and totally devoted to you. God, we pray and we ask these things in Jesus precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Imagine that you find yourself loving someone. You love them with such a great love that you desire to be with them always and forever. We've had two marriages here this month. It's interesting. You may not realize this, but every month, you know, when we send out that email or put it in the newsletter about birthdays and anniversaries, we've had an anniversary every single month of the year, usually several anniversaries except February. We had no February anniversaries, and now we're going to have two. So uh, it's pretty neat. But with all this love in the air, the weddings, the Valentines, we think about uh, falling in love. Spring is about to be upon us. But imagine that you find yourself with someone that you love, and you desire to commit yourself completely and totally to that person. Not necessarily because of what they have, but simply because of the love you want to share with them. They agree, and you are married. You commit yourself to see to their best, to, to everything that they should have. In fact, imagine that you're really a much better person than you actually are because rather than the love that we have for one another that's often tainted by selfishness or self-interest or laziness or disinterest, imagine that you love and serve your spouse perfectly. You really, literally give them your all. It's not just a statement. It's not just poetry or a Valentine's card. You give your everything for them. And then things start to seem weird. They start to feel a little funny. Something's off, you know. Something is not right. And you ask, what's wrong? Oh, nothing. It's fine. And you convince yourself, well, things will be better. We're just in a busy season right now. We're kind of struggling with money, perhaps. And money's going to get better. I'm going to get that raise. We're going to pay off this bill. Or, or maybe this busy season we're in is going to be over. Or, well, once the kids are grown, then we'll have more time. And you fill yourself with different Reasons because in your heart of hearts, you expect that something is wrong. But you don't want to even believe. But then there comes that day when you find out. It might be from a friend who said, I don't want to be the one to tell you this. It might be that you find a message on a phone from someone that shouldn't be sending your spouse a message like that. It might be of something odd that comes in on a credit card bill. But however you find out, you find out that the one that you have loved completely and totally and given your all to has been unfaithful to you. And so you go to confront them. You don't know what you're going to say. Your emotions are mixed. You're filled with anger and hatred and hurt. And can I forgive? Will I forgive? How will I respond? What are they going to say? What am I going to say back? You make the confrontation. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I never meant to hurt you. So you'll cut it off. So it'll be over and done. Well, you see, I just don't know. I'm kind of confused. I mean, I love you, but I love them too. You know, there's a lot of me to go around. <laughs> I, I, I can't make up my mind. We all know, can't make up my mind and love you both, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work for God either. When we have those wedding ceremonies we talked about, I always talk about the ring. The ring, it is a sign. It is a seal of the marriage covenant of of that agreement that has taken place, and that ring marks you as a married man or a married woman. You are no longer on the market. You are exclusively bound and committed to one person. Each of us who are believers, we have gone through a commitment and a marking in our life, and somewhere along the way, we were baptized. And that baptism set us apart. It marked us as part of the covenant of a community of faith. It marked our entrance into a covenant with God. And God likens that covenant to the marriage relationship. For someone who's baptized as as an infant, obviously they come to a point later in their life where they say, yes, mom and dad wanted this for me, but I say, yes, I agree. I ratify this amendment, this covenant. I am part of the community of faith. And just as sure as you say, I do, when you say, I believe, When you say, I repent and I believe, you are entering into a covenant. You are marked off as God's and God's alone. And yet, God's people from Old Testament times into today have had the same problems that many marriages face. You see, it's never the Old Testament It was never about the people of God, Israel, coming to God and saying, God, we're done. We want out. We want a divorce. We want to leave you for another God. In fact, it was always instead, God, we love you and all that you do for us. But, God, we also kind of love this other God, too. Those Egyptians where we were in slavery... They had some really cool, neat gods, and they seem to do a lot for them, and their economy's going well. And these Canaanites that live around here, these gods of Baal, who's a storm god, the god of power and war and and fertility, and Ashtoreth, the the female uh, correspondent to it, the Greek's. Later, uh, Romans, Greeks, they'd call her Aphrodite or a different name. But these gods that they worship, well, God, that will help my crops grow. And, And I know I'm supposed to trust in you, but our neighbors down the way, you know, their garden seems to grow well. And they offer sacrifices to this God. And so it was never, God, we don't love you. It was, God, we love you and. God, we're confused. God, we want you both. And over and over, God said, I am a jealous God. I love you with a jealous love. God openly says and admits that. Now, in our minds, we think of human jealousy, which is suspicious, which jumps to conclusions, which is unrightfully possessive. But this is a pure jealousy. God has the right to possess us completely. He does not jump to conclusions. He knows the full story, and he knows that we willingly stepped into that relationship with him when we made our public profession for Jesus Christ. We said, God, I do. I enter into this covenant relationship with you. The people of Israel There was circumcision, and there was entering into the community as an adult and saying, yes, I will follow you. They were marked and set aside as God's people. And yet, they chose to flirt with the world around them. How did they do so? Well, that kind of comes back to this whole crazy prophet who's preaching at the mountains. (laughs) What's that about? (laughs) Why is he hollering and yelling at the mountains all throughout the old testament you will hear god say tear down the high places what's wrong with the high places you get more sinful the higher you go is it an altitude issue no he does go on and say also your valleys and your ravines but the point was that pagan worship often took place on mountaintops You see, before there was a temple built, the Israelites were allowed to worship God uh, and build sacrifices to Jehovah God at certain different places around the country. But after the temple, all of that sacrifice, all of that worship was to take place in Jerusalem at the temple. But other folks said, well, you know, this is a little closer to home. And we'd like to worship here on this mountain. This is kind of where my family's always gone to worship And um, But what would happen, unfortunately, is that the pagan practices of the world, the Canaanites and the Egyptians and all the others that had these idols, these false gods, that would creep into the worship of these high places. And the rulers of the kingdom of God, those who were kings under the high king, the kings of Israel, didn't do anything about it. In fact, as the kingdom split, remember there was Saul, and then there was David, and then there was Solomon, and then the kingdom split into a northern and southern part. None of the northern kings ever stopped it. Most of them encouraged it because they didn't want their people going down to Jerusalem. And even out of the south, which tended to be the better part, the more faithful part, there were only two kings in all of the book of kings who actually said, we're not going to allow this. We're going to tear down those false sanctuaries. We're going to worship God the way he asked us to worship him. And so here they were. And the Bible says in poetic language on every hill. Here they were prostituting themselves. They were God's people. They had chosen. They had been entered into this covenant to follow him exclusively. And yet they chose. We're going to go another way. Now, I don't know of any of you today, if you have, you can come up afterward and tell me, but I don't know if any of you have visited an altar somewhere, and uh, you have knelt down and said, oh, pagan, wooden, golden, whatever God, please help me today. And so, it would seem at first glance that this would be a pointless message. Why would you preach this, Tim? There's nobody in New Hope, you know, that... As far as we know, maybe there's somebody with a Buddha out there, so I don't know. But most folks are not putting up shrines and altars and stuff around here. So we don't have idolatry, right? Wrong. Even at New Testament times, where there were still many of those wooden and stone gods set up. The Apostle Paul and other writers in scriptures understood that idolatry was not just uh, limited to a few idols made out of wood or stone or gold or silver. But an idol is anything that you replace God with. And for some of you, that idolatry is pleasure. Everything in your life is centered around being fulfilled through pleasure. It's not about God centering you about him filling you it's about can I enjoy myself as much as possible can I keep my temperature just right my music just right my tv just right I got the right shows to binge watch I've got the the right stuff to entertain me I've got season tickets to this I, I've got a trip planned to there my vacations are the best and entertainment is your God Because you put that above all else Making sure that you're happy and entertained For some of you It's a person Maybe your spouse Has themselves Become an idol That rather than God Being number one in your life It's your husband or your wife And You're so wanting to please them That if they say Hey forget about what he says Do what I say you say, okay, I'll make you happy. You're so, or you're so obsessed or worried about them. For some of you, it's your children. Everything in your life revolves around your children. God says, don't be angry. Don't be hateful. Don't be spiteful. Don't be wrathful. Sure, you hurt me. I'm fine. You touched my child. You're dead. <laughs> I'm going to take you out <laughs> because your child has become your idol. That thing you hold most holy and precious in your life. Maybe you're living your life through them and they're doing all the things that you couldn't do. Maybe you're you've got something in them, music or sports or whatever. And you know what? We won't ever miss a game. We'll miss church. We won't miss a game. What's become an idol in your life? What's the priority in your life when you've said, this is the thing we absolutely will not miss out on. We're committed to this. What about the commitment you made before Almighty God? We don't ever say, I bow down to baseball or golf or soccer or taekwondo or whatever it is. But in our lives, we can put those in their places. I've known lots of guys over the years of pastoring that sometime in the early fall, they'll say, hey, Brother Tim, um, good summer here at the church. I'll uh, see you when hunting season's over. And I literally, (laughs) literally don't see them because the hunting camp is their idol. I've known other folks who say, hey, we just got us a lake house or a beach house or a condo. And What does the Bible say so often? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And because we got all this money tied up in this thing, this boat, or, or, or this whatever it is, got to be using it every single weekend to get all of our money out of it because it's our new God. We worship at the lake, and we forget about our commitment to what God has called us to Maybe your God is success or prosperity. You will do anything and everything to climb the ladder in life to be more respected or liked or well-known. See, these gods don't even have to have names. There is an uncountable number of gods because anything that comes above him, anything that becomes the priority over pleasing God, over loving him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, that's your idol. And the message that God is telling us today is that I'm serious. If I didn't care about you, if I didn't love you, I'd say, sure, this is an open relationship. <laughs> Go worship anything you want. Go mess around with the world. Go put make anything that you want a priority in your life. But God does care. God has committed himself to you, and he asked for a full commitment in return. What is that high place in your life? What is that thing that you go to sleep thinking about or you wake up in the morning, that thing that's not God? You see, even a worry can be a God if that consumes you. Because the thing that we ought to go to sleep thinking about and we ought to wake up looking forward to and throughout the day be in communion with is God. And if there's something else in your life that takes that place, that's an idol. I don't know what that thing is. Maybe if I got a look at your calendar and your checkbook, I could kind of get a clue. But mostly, I'd have to see into your heart to see your thoughts, to know what do you really obsess over? What do you constantly worry about or think about? If it's not, how can I know God more? How can I bless others as God has blessed me? Then there's an idol. And God says, I love you with an exclusive love. I love you too much for you to play around with the idols. Burn the high places in your life. Tear down the altars to these other gods. Get rid of a relationship or change a relationship in the way you participate. Change your activities. Change your calendar. Whatever it is you have to do to reflect a changed priority. It says, God, you're at the top. God, just like these people in Israel, I've had unfaithful heart. I've had wondering eyes that have gone after other gods. I've gone after success or happiness or fulfillment somewhere besides you. But God, you're the only true way to those things. I repent and I turn back to you. That the folks in Ezekiel's day would have ever done that, they never would have gone through the destruction. But time and time again, they sat listening to prophets and priests, just like Christian people sit in pews Sunday after Sunday. And they heard it. "Mm, That's all right. I'd rate Ezekiel about a 6 out of 10. Today's message was all right. You know, uh, what did you think? They judged a worship service like they would an Olympic sport. Rather than listening, God, what are you saying to me? They didn't like that nagging feeling that they were feeling. They didn't like the words the Spirit of God was whispering in their hearts because it made them uncomfortable. And so they hardened their hearts And harden their hearts and harden their hearts until the day of judgment came upon them. And so often, as Christians, we cite the verse, and it's a wonderful verse that says, For those who are now in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And that is so true. We will never be condemned to hell for our sins. But that does not mean that our actions and attitudes are without consequence, because God also says, Those who I love they I also discipline. And if you are loved by God, if you are His, if you are in that covenant relationship with Him that began through repentance of your rebellion and sin against Him and faith in Him as your Lord and Savior, then you're His. You're His beloved. And God says, if you stray from me, I will follow you, I will woo you back, I will do everything I can to restore you. But there is a day of discipline, there is a day of judgment coming for those who continue to be unfaithful to me. Would you bow with me this morning in prayer? Heavenly Father, it's easy for us, as we hear your words, to sit and to say, well, I hope so-and-so hears this, or I wish so-and-so would have been here, or I wonder who that message was for. And God, the reality is this message is for every single one of us. Lord, just as Jesus taught his disciples that true adultery is not just a physical act, that it is something that begins in the heart. Idolatry is the same way. God, we are unfaithful to you, not when we go out and and raise up a banner over our house that says, we believe in other gods. Lord, our unfaithfulness begins the moment we begin to obsess over something else, the moment we begin to take our focus off of you. We've strayed. And God, so I come to you today asking for forgiveness. Because whether or not any of us have ever been adulterers in marriage, God, spiritually speaking, we've all failed you. We've all been unfaithful to you at times. And we come to you asking for your forgiveness. Asking that you would cleanse us and make us holy. Make us pure. And God, make us completely and totally focused on pleasing you. Take away our wandering eyes. And our unfaithful hearts make us wholehearted in our love for you, God. Bless our time of commitment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.